Google searches for the term abolition spiked in the weeks following George Floyd's murder. Until May 2020, most people understood the term as historical, a reference to the abolition of slavery in the early 19th century. Until very recently, concepts of police and prison abolition, certainly ideas as unthinkable as family abolition, were mostly confined to academic and activist circles. With the murder of George Floyd, and one year later of Sarah Everard, abolition and its attendant demands, defund the police, kill the bill, exploded into the discourse. So did a number of books on the subject, with both radical and mainstream publishers pumping out literature on policing, its colonial beginnings, and hoped-for end. Yet some might say this vogue in abolition is a mixed blessing. For as with the mainstreaming of queer politics in the last two decades, the growing popularity of abolitionism risks neutering its radical potential, risks allowing the state and corporate apparatus to co-opt our movements and nix their most potent demands. Others point to a parallel risk of creeping reformism, the consumption of activist energies within unending legal battles, government inquiries and independent reviews, such that we drown in a sea of recommendations and protocols and statistics until we forget what kind of world we wanted to create. Thankfully, there are a number of people wise to this threat and who are writing against it. Two of them are Shanice McBean and Avia Day, women who have been at the forefront of the recent wave of abolitionist organizing and yet have somehow found the time to write a book about it. Abolition Revolution was published last November by Pluto Press and, in a series of 16 theses, launches a powerful case for why, as they put it, abolition without revolution is like pre-drinks without the sesh. Shanice and Avia, welcome to Navarra FM. Thank you Hi. for having us. <laughs> um, so the slogan of the book that comes out quite early on is abolition is the pre-drinks and revolution is the sesh. <laughs> and I think for a lot of people, they'll find that a little bit confusing because, you know, abolition in and of itself seems like quite a revolutionary idea. Um, but so why did you feel like it was important to combine these two ideas and to present abolition not as the end in itself, but as a kind of precursor to something else or, you know, something bigger than abolition? That quote came from a tweet a few years ago and it was kind of meant in jest, but I think actually does represent um, the purpose of the book, which is to distinguish abolition from revolution for several reasons. I think one of the main ones being that the concept of revolution has been lost or diluted. And I think when we use the term revolution, we definitely mean a kind of working class, proletarian, anti-capitalist uprising, whereby we seize the means of production mm. for ordinary working class people. And that is certainly not a concept I think that is inherent in a modern understanding of abolition and I think the second point is that abolition as radical as it is theoretically in practice can have a tendency towards uh, softer reformist liberalisms which is quite surprising because the, the idea behind abolition is getting rid of violent institutions mm -hmm. but it isn't in and of itself a getting rid of also capitalism and wage labour mm. and I think um, there 
can be a tendency for abolitionists who are not grounded in a kind of revolutionary politics, a traditional revolutionary politics, to distinguish or separate um, the vision for a kind of revolutionized, complete revolutionized world mm. and that being separate to kind of just getting rid of carceral systems. Yeah. And you can imagine a world where, you know, carceral systems are tamed, but we still have wage labor and yeah. capitalism and environmental catastrophe. So for us, it was very much about cementing the radicalism of abolition in kind of a vision for um, a completely different world. Yeah, yeah. And you say that that's not the kind of abolitionism that we have today. I'm interested in like, what is your diagnosis of the kind of ideas of abolition that people currently have? Like, what was the idea that you were working against or like working with? you know, there's no one size fits all and like people don't necessarily mean the same thing when they refer to the abolition of policing and prisons. Yeah, It could mean anything from what, you know, Shanice like pointed out and has explained around our vision, which is a revolutionary one, mm. all the way to, you know, learning as an individual to be a bit less punitive to one another. And, you know, we essentially wanted to shift the conversation around abolition, what ab abolishing police, abolishing prisons could be. Mm -hmm. And one aspect of that I think it's important to kind of point out is part of the reason it has become such an important part of our um, politics for our generation, like policing and prisons and borders and surveillance, is because states have become, you know, the, these huge monsters in our lives and it has made it very difficult for for many people to see beyond that like it's very compared to decades and um decades past where you had global revolutionary movements where you had trade unions where you had anti-racist movements anti-colonial movements mm. who were making huge inroads you know now it feels like so much of what we're having to face is is policing and and prisons and borders and there's a reason for that they they're connected to each other it's yeah. you know they've built up the state and the state apparatus in order to prevent further revolutionary struggles and so they we see them as as deeply connected and we wanted to kind of write this to make the point that it's not just about um getting rid of prisons getting rid of policing it's also about visioning a, a completely different world so you know as Shanice was saying you know it's not it's not necessarily just getting rid of policing in prisons is going to be enough mm -hmm. it's a vehicle for envisaging what justice looks like what yeah. does it mean if we have the means of production what does it mean if we have the land so yeah that kind of thing so yeah, yeah. I like the idea of of abolition as a vehicle rather than the mm. kind of destination mm. um but it's interesting you're quite honest in the book um about your kind of political um trajectory and how you weren't always like revolutionary abolitionists mm. and in, in particular you know you talk about your well, the work of Sisters Uncut, which you've both been involved in, which started out in 2014 as, as, as trying to kind of um, reverse cuts to state services to, um, well, to women's services in particular, and has wound up, you know, um, most recently spearheading the Kill the Bill movement, which, as the name suggests, very much positions itself against the state. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in how, um, you know, you 
kind of came to hold these positions now, like the kind of journey that you went on um, from uh, basically being like the state is the answer to the state is the problem. Mm. Yeah, I think that... I guess there's lots of things that happen to 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 reach that that perspective, but I think one of the biggest ones is a recognition of the fact that the state, even when it is well funded, uh, still facilitates the very violence that we were campaigning against. Mm. So I think it was partly the kind of people that we had in the group in Sisters Uncut. It very much started off as kind of um, sector workers um, and people who'd had lived experience of domestic violence. And I think as the group began to grow and different kind of political traditions and different people of different identities got involved and the politics began to become diversified, um, we started to realise and focus on different things. Mm. So, for example, you know, um, there was a lot of uh, anti-borders and kind of migration solidarity activism happening at the time that Sisters was kind of rising and growing. And our involvement in that was hugely influential. The recognition of, you know, the fact of... The violence of of the inherent violence, in fact, of borders and of deportation centres and of police and um, the state itself. You know, the, the fact that, for example, um, at least at the time when we were organising, 50% of police stations had a policy of arresting um or of of questioning um, people's migration status and then potentially like arresting them if mm. they reported violence, sexual violence, domestic violence. Mm. So the very tools that we were looking to then fund the state, um, you know, domestic violence services, etc., were in in and of themselves complicit in harm and violence. And so that led us to a completely different um, conclusion, which is that it all has to go. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's something interesting about the involvement in the struggles of other people, right? Because both of you have talked and talk in the book um, about, and we'll come on to this later, about like your own particular contact with the police state maybe being part of what prompted you to to kind of like move towards abolitionism. But ultimately, um, as you say, in order to become revolutionary, you have to see the system as interlinked, like the the system of policing is interlinked with borders, is interlinked with, you know, policing of gender, of family, all of it. And that can't, I mean, no one individual holds all of the marginalized identities at once. And therefore, understanding those systems necessarily involves like getting involved in other people's problems and starting to kind of like um, organize with other groups. And I mean, like, yeah, do you think that that's, that that's the case that like you know um that only through that kind of like inter like that 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 work with other 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 groups who like it's not personal experience Mm. that makes one an abolitionist basically it's the kind of like uh organizing in struggle with people whose problems aren't yours yeah (laughs) you know i would say i would say that like lived experience is an important part of what drives people to want change, Mm. um, not only for themselves, but for other people. And so it it is an important aspect in the sense of, you know, if you've experienced oppression, whether that's racial oppression, whether that's class oppression, whether you've experienced gender depression or violence, um, that being a kind of a spark for you in terms of, you know, envisaging something else or envisaging something more just in your life, Mm. but it can't really stop there. Um, because, you know, just your lived experience isn't going to give you a roadmap for how you're going to get 
justice. It's not going to tell you how you're going to get there. And it's not going to tell you who you need to work with to get there. And so, yeah, that's like, I mean, that is one of the things that was really, even though Sisters Uncut um, generally like just like organized internally with like women and non-binary people and didn't wasn't really open to, to men, um, it wasn't separatist in the sense of, you know, we had a political vision that separated ourselves from men. And so that was like key early on at the same time as Sisters Uncut was starting the first like or very early like Black Lives Matter um, sort of uprisings and protests were happening at the same sort of time. And so it was really important for us to work with other groups who were organizing around deaths in police custody, like United Friends and Family campaign, Black Lives Matter um, working with London Campaign Against Police and State Violence, who were all, you know, a lot of their work was about addressing the, like, police violence towards um, racialized groups, often men. And so it was deeply important for us to see those struggles as connected and not, you know, not separate from one another and that our, our, our struggles, you know, our ability to be free would not be, you know, we weren't in a position to be free without all of those other people. And so... Yeah, I definitely think that that is that was always a really important part of our organizing. Mm. I did think about this a little bit though, and I was revisiting something that you wrote for us a while ago, um, Shanice, about uh, police being the domestic abusers of the nation and the allegories between like the way the police behave and the way that um, abusive men behave. And I was thinking about this idea that like, whilst as you say, lived experiences and everything, it can't can't kind of be the end of the um of the analysis it also maybe played quite an instrumental role um with sisters in that you know being um survivors of or um relatives friends of allies to survivors of domestic violence gives you a unique insight into um policing and how it works because of the analogies and the, uh, you know and the similarities between how policing operates um through coercion and control and how domestic violence operates and also how an institution like the police could have popular appeal and popular support how you know women who are being abused could think of um the police as their saviors even though the police are the same people that abuse them that logic kind of might make sense to a survivor of domestic violence who has been maybe uh, in a relationship with someone and who has loved someone who has also hurt them a great deal i don't know does that seem does that ring true to you at all yeah, it does. But I think um, one of the important things about the journey of sisters is that we went beyond um, that immediate lived experience. And I think you can see that in the kind of stories that we and, and ways in which we start started to tell the story of, of, of carceral uh, violence and, and, and state injustice. And I think like a key part of that is the Kill the Bill movement. So, for example, you know, there is that immediate and very intense experience of police violence that, for example, you experience on the streets or on the borders or when you're getting arrested. But then, then there's also the fact that when you call the police when your house is burgled, nothing happens. And there's also the fact that, you know, when you go to a cop shop and you report something, there's huge like waiting times for anything to happen. There's also the, ex the lived experience that millions of people have that, you know, you report an incredibly traumatic experience and nothing comes of it. And, you know, I think the pandemic was a watershed for that kind of whole society-wide experience of what carceral 
uh, injustice and what carceral violence can feel like. And I think that's why you had like the anti-vax movement as right wing and in, in parts fascist as it was. It certainly was um, a, a, a response to repression and oppression that was coming from the state. And that I think is has been quite important to how Sisters Uncut has told stories as we're very much take that starting point of that kind of extreme experience of violence, but generalize it beyond our own lived experience to, you know, the experience of a worker on the picket line or the experience of someone on board on the borders or experience of someone, you know, walking down the street in the middle of a pandemic and getting mm. accosted by police. Mm -hmm. And I think that has been quite important to how we have developed an abolitionist politics. Because the fact of the matter is abolition won't happen unless everyone's on board. Mm. We don't need the rich and powerful to be on board, but we certainly need our neighbours and our communities to be on board. Mm. So how do you generalise that politics? Mm. And again, it's through that concept of solidarity mm. and through that concept of taking the particular lived experience and 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 making it a kind of collective concern. Yeah, I, I'm interested in, in stories, obviously, being uh, like a journalist and someone who, who tells tell stories for a living but yeah like how how did you go about like thinking about what kinds of stories to tell and the language that you would use when you when you spoke to the public because you know at the point I guess uh, you know we're talking about 2020 um when the pandemic first started and also um the uh, policing bill was being kind of tabled and and so on like that was a moment where probably the ideas of abolition um, weren't so uh, familiar to a lot of people, but you were trying to popularize them um, through through making kind of common sense <laughs> um, statements about police power. But like, yeah, how did you, how did you go about like formulating that language in a way that didn't like immediately turn people off or go over people's heads or like feel really unrelatable to people? <laughs> I think that like one of the reasons I suppose why Sisters Uncut ended up in the situation that it was around like the murder of Sarah Everard is because we had been doing abolitionist organizing before that moment and so we had you know probably the the earliest example of that is around um, Holloway Prison when Holloway Prison closed and before that when Sarah Reed died in Holloway Prison and um, you know we were building a kind of abolitionist uh, sort of abolitionist ideas and theories and explanations for why why was it that a black you know survivor um, um, of sexual violence ended up in Holloway prison and ended up dying and like understanding the role of the state in her death and understanding that the vision therefore is to end prisons that's when we start to get this kind of burgeoning abolitionist kind of you know organizing and theory and ideas and so we had been developing that over 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 quite you know quite a while before that mm. and then when Sarah Everard was murdered um a lot of people who hadn't engaged with abolitionist ideas were really really deeply shocked by what had happened and we were it was it was shocking in so far as you know we know that police officers murder people every day. This was quite unusual in the way that, you know, police officers normally murder because they don't normally need to, you know, um, pretend anything. Normally they can take people to 
you know, police stations and get away with all kinds of things. And mm. that's been the experience. And that's the experience of families who have been fighting that injustice in organisations like United Friends and Family campaign. Mm -hmm. um, but that murder essentially shocked a lot of people in this country because they suddenly, what they understood to be the, the rules and the regulations and the laws that were there to protect them suddenly felt very exposing and felt like something that was very frightening because a class of people, the police had um unaccountable powers and it kind of that was a that was a that was a case that revealed the the you know what happens at the extreme end of the use of those powers that mm. you can go onto the street demand someone you know goes into your handcuffs goes in your car and you can do whatever you want mm. um and that shocked a lot of people who had not been exposed to how frightening that is um, largely, you know, white middle class and some, you know, working class populations in this country who might not have been exposed to that in the past. And mm -hmm. so, you know, we were able to use our experience before that to to kind of speak to that in a way that, you know, lots of other people were, were, were struggling to make sense of that and to say the reason why this is happening is because the police have the power to do it. They're unaccountable. There's nothing to stop them from doing it. And we need to we need to dismantle those powers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think there's also something um, interesting because in the book that you've chosen to write, um, in that it's you know abolition has obviously had currency um, in like academic and activist circles um, for a long time now, and like I suppose. Black Lives Matter, which sort of originated in the US, gave it currency. Um, but but you talk about how like a lot of the ab US abolitionist um, kind of like praxis and demands don't really make sense in the UK, like defund the police. When you've got an austerity government, defunding something is like not exactly a radical demand because the Tories will just be like, sure, be my guest. Um, and so I'm interested in why you've chosen to write a book specifically about the UK context. You know, you could have written a more theoretical book that was, wasn't as grounded in um, this particular like geography. Um, but but yeah, like why was it important to write about, about British abolitionist kind of histories, colonial histories and like futures the u.s is um a very interesting place and i think exists in quite stark extremes and i think the u.s has popularized abolition and the black lives matter movement in in ways that i think you know globally anti-racists are incredibly grateful for and in many ways the u.s shines a spotlight on kind of the worst excesses of, of carceral violence. And the reason why I say the worst excesses is, is because it's what's visible. And in the UK, one of the things that we have perpetually suffered from is the kind of invisibilizing of violence, that kind of quite British uh, presentation of violence. It's violence, but, you know, with a cup of tea. Mm -hmm. And I think that is often how our police operate. They don't have guns. They don't, um, they're not militarized in exactly the same way as they are in the US. Their violence is much more um, polite. It's, you know, the beating up without a camera um, in a cell. It's it's the kind of less warfare types of violence. And I think that organisers in the UK have often said that it happens here too. 
And I think although there has been so much to learn from the US, we wanted to give voice to those organisers, particularly fam family campaigners who have said for years and years and years exactly what happened to Trayvon Martin, exactly what you saw in, in the videos of, um, you know, Rodney King or um, Philando Castile. That is happening here too. And I think, um, you know, I, I don't even think we reference many US authors even mm. that's the extreme that we went in order to kind of focus on the mm. the UK context but that was very deliberate because we wanted to make the point that this violence is global it has to be global in order to function the communication and networking that happens at the ruling class level is essential to the maintenance of like carceral systems um, and so we yeah it was important for us to to put that spotlight on the specificities of that violence in the UK the way it shows up in borders mm. the way it shows up in um the prison system the way it shows up in in supposedly kind of like non-violent policing the mm. way it shows up in even to, you know the way it shows up in the benefits office or social services and yeah. yeah that and schools with the prevent program and hospitals um so it was quite important for us to kind of make those those points the the kind of violence of the everyday that like violence isn't just about like tasering or shooting people but also like denying them benefits or reporting them their four-year-old kids for doing a drawing or whatever yeah and the outcome is the same people end up dead um mm -hmm. but i think you know part of the reason why the british empire was as successful as it was was precisely that ideology that it surrounded itself with you know we quote rudyard kipling in the book the white man's um burden um the idea that we are here to save and protect you and that is such a particular, particularly British way of doing violence. And it, it works. <laughs> you know, people really do think the police are in this country here to protect us. The Bobby's on the beat. And it's quite different to how it shows up in the US. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The warfare, though, I mean, like, obviously... Uh, isn't maybe so visible in the UK kind of mainland, but like I think maybe that's why it's useful for you to invoke colonial histories um, because, I mean, those practices were much more common there, um, things that would never be practised against kind of British people or white British people were routinely practised against subjects of empire. But so I wonder whether like as, you know, the empire comes home to roost, <laughs> as it were, um, like what we're seeing with things like the policing bill and the public order bill it is the kind of importing of formerly like colonial methods into like the homeland, the motherland sort of thing. Um, or whether you see this as like a slightly different, still a slightly different kind of thing that's happening um, with the expansion of police power. One of the things that we really wanted to do with the book was to highlight the kind of colonial roots of policing. And one of the things that can be not wrong, but a little bit oversimplified is the way that a lot of US literature points to the, the kind of slave patrols as the, as the root of policing. And just like today, you know, policing, surveillance, it's a complex web um, across the world that borrows and tries to solve problems like problems of colonialism. The elite tried to solve the problems of anti-colonial resistance and tried to solve the problems of slave results with all kinds of different techniques and strategies and shared them across different colonies, across different empires, etc. And so, you know, it's not necessarily like this one thing is the root of everything. It, you know, it's a very complex history with a and the British Empire 
you know, has a lot to answer for in terms of why we have the strategies we have today. Mm. I think there's always been a bit of a a tendency to, you know, test things out on the colonies. You know, Ireland was the kind of first sort of British colony where you see the early techniques of policing and surveillance um, kind of tested out and kind of making their way back onto um, the mainland. Um, but I think, you know, sometimes there's there's an impression that people get that, you know, white British workers are just were just respected more or valued more than the rest of the world. But actually, one of the things that we kind of argue in the book is that it's not because, you know, the elite just liked white working class people better. There was, you know, an issue of legitimacy in the colonies where, you know, they were constantly having to... Um, suppress and repress anti-colonial resistance um, because they were not a legitimate governing body. Um, And whereas, you know, on the mainland, they had to um, kind of at least have this pretense of legitimacy. So they used less violence and tried to garner more consent in a way that just wouldn't work on the colonies. They just couldn't get away with that. And so it's not you know, it's not a situation where they're like, we hate these black and brown people in these special ways, but we really like these white people. It's like, how do we maintain control and legitimacy in quite a complex imperial mm-hmm. kind of situation? And so, yeah, I think that there's always been like, how much can we get away with? How much can we bring back into yeah. the mainland? That's always been a character of, of empire. But it kind of suggests something, it's like paradoxically like encouraging maybe that like the uh, expansion, you know, the attempt to like expand police power um, into like with techniques that resemble those that were maybe mm. used in the colonies suggests like the state's like fear of um, of mm. resistance, that it can't, that, you know, there's a crisis um, in policing by consent and that the lack of legitimacy um, in policing because of the successive crises that began long be- before Sarah Everard, of course, but like that was obviously a a kind of like climax of of a lot of that crisis um you know has meant that the police now need to rely more on force than on um consent and this is where i will say something quite bold but i will stand by it and i'm pretty sure i will be proven right but i think (laughs) that the state and the question of coercion and control and subduing the population this is going to be the question that um confronts everyone on the left over the next 5, 10, 15 years, whether it's trade unions and trade union organising becoming more and more illegal and difficult, and so trade union leaders having to consider wildcat or unlawful trade union action, or you know whether it's um, increasing regulations and stipulations around how we're allowed to protest, or even how we're allowed to be in public, um, as we saw through the pandemic. And I think the as you mentioned, you used the word crisis and we use the word crisis a lot in the book. And I think the state is going to have to rely more and more and more on violence and control and coercion because it is in an, in an unsolvable crisis. And if you want to talk about parliamentary politics, the reason why, you know, the Labour Party being in power is going to be incredibly difficult for whoever the prime minister of a Labour you know, government will be is because they will be given the same crisis that the Tories are in now. And they will have to either um, respond by fundamentally changing the system or continuing on in the direction that the system's currently going in, which is more destitution, more crisis, more violence, more coercion, more control, more injustice. And so more and more, I think, um, 
wider swathes of society, not just black community, not just the GRT community, not just sex workers, more and more people are going to be confronted with the carceral state, as what happened with Sarah Everard. Um, you know, and we saw after uh, Sarah Everard was murdered by Wayne Cousins, we saw the faith that women generally, not working class women, not black women, women generally had in police plummeted. And I think that's going to be a more regular experience. And so, you know, I think questions around abolition, carcerality are going to come more and more and more to the fore mm -hmm. um, as the crisis continues. And as capitalism has no re resolution to its own fundamental economic and environmental crises. And I think um, that is why abolition revolution, because the need for a carceral state comes from a system trying to protect itself from itself. But eventually those contradictions are going to explode in a way that we hope um, will be uh, terminal for capitalism hopefully not terminal for the working class there was that barbarism or socialism and i think you know that's gonna become that's more and that's, more I mean, the question yeah, yeah. it's more and more <laughs> obvious mm -hmm. i guess there's this um you know let's say like escape route or like uh i don't know what what metaphor to use to call it that like the state has come up with which is you know the McPherson report, the Lamy review, the undercover policing inquiry. You know, we've got this now investigation into uh, David Carrick. The policing apparatus and state apparatus that underpins it is very practiced in displays of getting its house in order um, and, you know, talking increasingly in the language of anti-oppression, you know, saying the police has a problem with institutional racism or sexism. And I'm, I'm wondering how, you know, the, the abolitionist movement, whether that's the Kill the Bill movement or whatever it now morphs into, um, can break that sort of rinse and repeat cycle of like, oh, we did something bad. Okay, let's launch an unending investigation that's going to like waste loads of activists' time and attention and like draw, you know, become a black hole for people's like attention and resources, you know? I mean, I don't want to speak too soon, but it's, well, it's been nearly two years since Sarah Everard was murdered. I really thought by now that, you know, the crisis in policing that by now that they would have made massive inroads in terms of garnering public um, trust again. And I think that is still possibly on the cards. They, it's still possible that they could use, you know, um, horrible examples of, of sexual violence to try and like scare people into trusting them again. I, I think that is still possible. However, it's, you know, it, that hasn't really happened and people are not growing in their trust. You know, there's this YouGov poll that said that more than half of Londoners think that the Met are racist and sexist. That's that's really scary for the Met. Like, I'm sure that they're, they're, they're pretty freaked out about that. Um, it's it, kind of following on for what Shanice was just saying you know, this crisis isn't just a crisis in policing, it's a crisis in capitalism generally that is just getting worse and worse and worse. And generally what, you know, it has been offered in the past has been certain kinds of material um, benefits to, to garner that trust back, you know, whether it's been council housing or the NHS or, or you know, better working conditions. And that does not seem in any way, shape or form on the cards. If anything, you know, we're in climate breakdown 
um, we've had COVID-19, like everything is falling apart at the seams and they don't seem in the elite and the establishment don't seem in, in any way in, interested yeah. in redistributing no. anything at all. And so it feels as though, yeah, like Shanice was saying that we're, we're confronting a moment now where, you know, essentially they're closing ranks. They're kind of using the police in order to protect you know everything that they've got, and it doesn't seem like they're gonna they're gonna bring an option to to throw out a few crumbs from from mm. the table. That doesn't no. seem like that's where where things are going. Yeah, I just when you mentioned that, I suddenly um, brought to mind like a fact that I didn't know, which is that like upon entering number ten in nineteen seventy nine, Margaret Thatcher gave all public sector workers a twenty five percent pay rise, and people forget that like those were the days when the Tories were still willing to buy off like public support and now you know like they they can't they can't bribe people out of their rights like and so they're basically just having to kind of use force in the absence of like cash yeah <laughs> yeah and and just on that i think this is where the us is an important kind of petri dish or, or test case um and i think the direction that the politics go in around tyree uh tyree Williams. The direction that the politics go around his murder, I think, will be quite important for the abolitionist movement globally um, because the officers who murdered him, most of them are black. They had body cameras. Um, a lot of these reforms that people had been calling for were in place and he was still murdered. Um, and I think that just goes to show that some of the tools that they, they're using to subdue the abolitionist story, subdue the abolitionist narrative, it's not working. They're running out. They're running out of juice. And I think a similar thing has played out here. Um, it's partly the reason why Cressida Dick didn't didn't last in the end because I think people she said she was going to do a review of um, policing she said specifically she was going to do a review around Sarah Everard they introduced new measures around sexual violence and it didn't work she's yeah she's still she's still true. gone I mean like yeah it's, it's true they like missed a massive PR trick having like the head of the like met be a woman at the time of this massive you know scandal around like sexual abuse within policing like they didn't manage to convince the public that like it was her that, that as a woman she was best placed to yeah. like fix this problem or that she understood the pain or anything like that like she's she's not like or, or that attacks on her leadership were misogynistic or any of that like yeah, yeah it's kind of they tried they, did they? <laughs> it didn't last very long yeah yeah <laughs> she was just completely unconvincing with it but I think you know I guess the final thing that I'll say is in the 1800s when the state-funded policing um, institution that we now know today as the Metropolitan Police was introduced. The reason why it was introduced, partly, at least part of the story, is that prior to a state-funded policing service, they used the cavalry to subdue demonstrations, mass demonstrations, revolts, direct action, etc. And when that the cavalry turned lethal, as opposed to subduing the population, it made them more radical, more revolutionary, more of a problem. And the issue that the state will always have that will never, never not be the case is there are more of us than there are police officers and there mm. always will be more of us than there are police officers. And eventually that contradiction could be fatal for them because if they pissed, am I allowed to swear? 
<laughs> if they piss off, <laughs> if they piss off enough of us, which is the direction is that because happening. of crisis they have to go and they have to use more force against more and more people in order to keep the system under check. But the more and more they do that, they risk creating their and digging their own grave in mm. a sense. Um, and and that's the problem that they have. So it'll be interesting to see what new tools they could possibly come up with um to try and square that circle but another report or more black officers or you know another sacking and rehiring that's done we're past the time where that's actually going to work so yeah it'll be interesting to see what else they've got i think that i think like kind of what what we're seeing is like the the contradictions of it are like bubbling to the surface and are being experienced by many more people in a way that is normally concealed yeah and like that you know is it's quite an interesting time to be in because it's like there's what the police say they're for which is to protect us all and then what's actually happening and like that square in the circle that Cressida Dick fundamentally couldn't with you know waving down buses to protect you from lone police officers or yeah, you know having sending. some kind of fundamentally in order for them to protect capital they need to have unaccountable power but if they have unaccountable power, then they can murder us on the streets. And there is no way to square that circle. Mm. And that's what we're seeing, that people keep putting this question to this commissioner or that police officer. And there is n there's fundamentally no answer to that that is satisfactory to people. And that's kind of why we're, we're still in this like mm -hmm. feeling of, a, of a, a crisis in policing. It's not really going away. Mm. I want to pivot just to a subject which is uh, preoccupying me quite a lot at the moment. And I've like written and 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 sort of like done quite a bit of work around which is another type of abolition family abolition and I think there's a place where family and police abolition kind of intersect and that is social services and this comes up a little bit in the book um in relation to you Avia who actually uh did a master's in social work but you describe it as a misguided and never used <laughs> master's in social work and I just want you to tell us a little bit about your disillusionment with the field which I know um, from what you've written in the book relates or might relate a bit to your own personal experiences of of the kind of social services arm of the state yeah yeah and I guess that 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 is kind of tracking a little bit with you know um you know we talk about in the book how much our like politics and the politics of Sisters Uncut changed through struggle through you know through organizing and that was also true of my experience and my initial ideas of becoming a social worker, you know, I did a master's when I was 21, fresh out of uni and thought, yeah, like who better to be a social worker than someone who has experienced the care system, who's experienced social services and child protection systems when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I very, very quickly, and a lot of a lot of people have this idea, especially when they're really young, that I'm gonna I'm gonna go and I'm gonna reform the systems that oppressed me. I'm gonna be the one that's gonna go in and I'm gonna make it better. And then either <laughs> either you kind of get like, you know, just chewed up <laughs> by that system and then turned into another part of that repressive system or you very quickly learn that you that that's just not going to happen and I despised my time really work, mm. like as a student social worker very quickly realized that my the point of me being there was to police families um and that was it. And it was to blame them for things that weren't their fault. It was to blame them for their poverty. It was to blame them for their trauma and basically approach them as 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 feckless uh, parents who should know better but don't because 
they're just not trying hard enough. That mm. was the whole job. Um, and so, yeah, as soon as I finished that, as soon as I finished that master's, I was like, I'm, I'm out of here. This is uh, no way do I want to be part of this. And I think, yeah, it's one of the things that I'd like to do more um, in the future, like in terms of organizing, writing, that kind of thing is connecting the dots between social services, the family and policing, because I mean, it, 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 it really does, especially about, it does, it does do this a bit in the abolitionist movement in the States, but in this country, those, those dots haven't really been connected in, in the movement level yet. Mm. But, you know, if you think about it, you know, there is, there are, there are a few things worse that you could do to someone in, as a punishment than take their children away and say you can never see them again as long as you live. There are a few things that would cause as, as deep level trauma yeah. as, as that. Yeah, that more than of, prison for some people. Yeah, probably. for some people, like, would rather spend the rest of their life in prison and be able to see their kid once a month than say, you can never speak to them again, we're going to change their name, we're going to put them in another family, you'll never see them ever again. It's, like, the probably one of the most punitive things you could possibly do to someone and destroy their lives and often destroy their, the kid's life as well for a lot of them. Um, and, like, understanding that as an act of the punitive state and understanding the connections between that and prisons policing you know there's there's a reason why so many of the um people who are in prison have have spent time in care like my dad was in prison he spent time in care that is that is a typical story if you go to any prison and ask them about their background and their lives huge amounts of them would have sp spent time in foster care um in children's homes etc and so like understanding the connections there i think is a really important an important thing to do and a crucial thing for like an abolitionist movement in this country should be making inroads there as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. It just goes to show you how much prisons are about warehousing societal problems caused yeah. by capitalism as yeah. well. Actually, you know, if we had different conception of what family life was or what care was or what community was, those children wouldn't need to be in quote unquote care yeah. and wouldn't end up in being warehoused in prisons when they're when they're older. So yeah, just goes to show. It's really interesting. And it's also kind of like so messed up that it's called care in a way because it's like, <laughs> it's gesturing towards this like alternative, you know, this this thing that it's that it doesn't provide yeah. <laughs> um you know it's kind of dystopian in that sense but uh, you know you also talk in your a book about um how crime isn't real but harm is and that like care does like is needed in a lot of um communities and to to to, to substitute um the, the you know the kind of police state um and like that we do need to create alternatives to it. We can't just take something away, we, although maybe in many cases we can just take it away and everything will be fine. Um, but in some cases, clearly there needs to be an alternative uh, provision, right? And that like lots of abolitionists, uh, when I spoke to Ruth Wilson Gilmore, she talks about this, that it's like a creative project. It's not just a destructive one. The name is a bit misleading in that sense. We're not just abolishing something. We're like building something else in its place. Um, which brings me to the end of the book um, where you have this symposium. Uh, you move away from like your kind of theses to, to, to a discussion with um, different um, activists in the UK who are interested in or involved with abolition in some way. And um, there's a sex work activist, Lyd Lydia Caradonna, who lots of people listening um, will probably be familiar with, who makes this argument that abolition is um, 
an essential part of it is rejecting the overwork culture of capitalism that means that we don't have time to create those alternatives that we don't have time to create like an autonomous accountability process for our friend who's like sexually assaulted our other friend rather than just like report them to the police mm. but obviously like it's not as easy as that we we can't just throw off overwork culture because for many people um not being over, like refusing that overwork would also mean like impoverishing themselves um they they need to work as much as they do um and so how like in the conditions of capitalism that we are living under um do we actually begin the work of abolition now i think that's where the revolution side of abolition is quite important because and 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 why we would both although we kind of describe ourselves in different ways we would both describe ourselves as materialists because you don't reject uh, overwork culture by waking up one day and deciding I'm going to work less you reject overwork culture by fighting for gaining winning and forcing material change in our communities in our living situations and in our lives that mean we can get some of that time back so some and this is also relates to you know the idea of crime being a social construction but harm being real and how do you respond to that well you know part of it is there is so much that is missing in our lives that creates a vast, the vast majority of problems that we experience and harm that we experience, whether it's, you know, physical violence in the home or, you know, violence on the street from policing. It's created by a lack. It's created by a loss, lack of housing, lack of ability to feed your family, um, you know, lack of ability to, you know, get mental health support if you need it, um, lack of ability to live a, a full, fulfilling, nourishing life. A lot of that is what creates crime and what creates um, inter-community um, violence. And the solutions to overwork culture are the same solutions to those kind of um, aspects of crime as well, which is that... Um, or, or harm rather, which is that, you know, we need uh, better funded communities. We need better structures and resources to be able to live and to be able to work. We need better working conditions. We need working workers' rights. We need more time doing leisure and less time doing work. And that comes from higher wages. Um, and higher wages also means less theft is needed. <laughs> yeah. You know, all of these things are connected. Um, so, yeah, I think... Um, and I reckon Lydia would probably agree that you, the issue with overwork culture, as you rightly said, you know, you can't just imagine it out of existence. We've right. got to fight for that redistribution of wealth back into working class communities. We've got to fight for our rights at work. We've got to fight for the ability to walk through public freely without being harassed mm. by police. And all of these things will help us slowly work towards... Um, you know, just being able to just live better. Mm -hmm. um, I think I think it's also important to point out that the reason we asked Lydia to be part of that symposium um, was partially because she's a sex worker, but not only, but also because she's a unionized sex worker. She was speaking from the perspective of a um, trade union organizer in um, United Voices for the World. And so, you know, that's another example of that kind of like, yeah, there's lived experience there, but she's building from that lived experience with a vision, an organizing vision for for something for something better. So she, you know, she doesn't necessarily want to. Um, she, when she's talking about, you know, oh, um, getting rid of like overwork culture, she's, 
you know, as I understood it, talking about it in the context of organizing her workplace, organizing her brothel so that they don't have to work so many hours so that they have more time for their family, they have more time for their community. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, definitely like feeding, like um, following on from what Shanice is talking about, it's, it's you know, these things aren't about an individual choice. You, you're only going to be able to to get as much as you win as a class, as a collective, whether that's at the workplace level, whether that's at the community level, that's very rarely, if ever, going to be at, at the individual level. Mm, I think that's really an important reminder. And I think, you know, like, I suppose it's just a catchphrase over work culture, but it points to this idea that it's just a lifestyle that you can just refuse in the same way that you could have, like, uh, a lifestyle of, of, of hard work. You could also reject have a culture of, like, not hard work, but it's not... <laughs> it's not it's not a new year's resolution you know yeah, exactly but also abolition isn't a lifestyle and i think that that's again the point of the book i think you're right to point out that kind of lifestyle approach to politics that also comes from a very identity first and identity centered approach to politics which is very much starting from the individual um and we're very much about um beginning from that collective um, experience of the world and that collective need to kind of change the world and its social relations and the balance of like class power and yeah. yeah yeah cool well I mean just to bring ourselves to a close I'm really interested in um I mean you were talking about having slightly different um you know like political ideas about things which is obviously very important and natural um but I'm interested in how the process of writing this book um shaped both of your kind of ideas um you know it's a it's it's such a like it's such a not just coherent but like synthetic like piece of work that like really doesn't feel like it's two different people's ideas but but some but you know two people who have married and and exchange ideas over many many trips to the pub <laughs> and um and I just wonder like how that process has been for both of you and like what you've um what you've got out of it um in terms of your your thinking about abolition Mm, it's a really good question. I think that, well, speaking for myself, I'd say that, you know, my, there's a few tendencies that I have that like shifted through writing the book. Like, um, we're both materialists, but I'd say that my materialism is a lot more grubby than, than Shanice's is <laughs> in that I just want a political economic answer for absolutely everything. And, you know, very rarely find myself like comfortable in the kind of cultural explanations for things, but hearing Shanice's and writing with Shanice around that stuff really helped me to kind of like break out of my, you know, economic only, materialist only, like analysis about everything. Um, yeah, I don't know if you actually want to say a bit more about from your perspective, actually, before yeah. I carry on. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Working no, I with think... an orthodox materialist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I would say that the book made me a more intransigent communist <laughs> and <laughs> I think even more so having you know done the work and research and had the conversations for the book I don't think there's any other way to achieve mm -hmm. a non-carceral world except for some kind of socialist and or communist revolution completely gets rid of capitalism for good um where the working class rule the world Woo! Um, <laughs> but in terms of the writing process I think um where I definitely benefited from writing it with Avia is that question of kind of looking back at our own experience as organizers 
And Via's very good at kind of linking her experience of the world and her experience as an organizer to the kind of vision yeah. of that we have as abolitionists and that we have as revolutionaries. And I can sometimes get kind of trapped in the numbers around things. This is this number and this is that <laughs> number. So this is what it is like in the world. And I think sometimes, you know, um, it's, it, it's really important to ground yourself in actually how things feel, how things are experienced, um, and how things are in the, in the everyday. So, yeah, I think that, that, that actually was quite complimentary, um, because I'm not, I can, I'm not, if I'm at a party, I'm not going to be the one that's got a crowd of people around them like telling stories. That, but that's Avia, and Avia will have like a crew of people around her cackling, throwing hands because she's telling this absolutely hilarious story. But if you ask me for quite a precise interpretation of a particular theory or something that happened, mm. I'm quite good at that. Um, and I'm often, that. yeah, <laughs> and I'm often found in a party explaining the intricacies of you know Lenin versus Trotsky. So I think. That that, that was, can confirm yeah <laughs> so I think actually but those two things were quite complementary because I think we wanted to have we wanted to produce a book that was polemic um and polemical that was not kind of trapped in gray dusty academia mm. but also wanted it to be um from a research research and empirical perspective legitimate um and so I think both of our writing styles really complemented each other in that sense yeah I mean it is very polemical I mean I, I I really like the fact that you just do away with chapters and just call them what they are and <laughs> have a series of theses which basically like read as a kind of paragraph in and of themselves and then just like if you don't read the book just read the read the you know chapter you know um, yeah so we stole heading. that from Tithi Bhattacharya who stole that from Gramsci okay <laughs> so good, there's good. the trajectory yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Oh, it's so wonderful talking to you both. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank uh, you. Thank Sinovia. you for having us. A pleasure. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just one pound a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support.